The next 27 minutes are an experiment, but in order for it to work, you have to pay attention. What's up, skeptics? I'm your host, Zoe McDaniel, and you're listening to Professional Skepticism. So today we are talking about Coney 2012. And I think I was 13 when that came out. And I've always wondered like what came of that? What happened? I'm sure a lot of people are wondering the same thing. If you're not familiar, it's probably one of the earliest online campaigns for social justice that gained as much traction as it did. I feel like now There's always some sort of viral human rights campaign going on on the internet. And an issue that we have now is that there's like so much stuff going on all the time that it's hard to be a part of all of it. And I think a lot of people feel bad. They're like, oh, like I can't donate to every single cause or spend, you know, as much time doing all this volunteer work as I'd like to. So I think Coney is a very... Coney 2012 is a very interesting one to look at because it was kind of the first, um, I mean, it wasn't like the first online social justice campaign, but it was, the, I guess, the first one that really picked up like this. And now it's interesting to see kind of the timeline of how things have changed in that realm of social justice online. So let's just dive right into it. Coney 2012 was directed by Jason Russell. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Jason. Jason Russell was born on October 12, 1978, so he is a Libra, which I think once we start talking about how theatrical Coney 2012 was and some of the other videos and work that they did, it makes sense to me. He really pulls on um, the heartstrings with some of the emotional appeals that he makes. What is it? Ethos, pathos, and logos, lothos, <laughs> that you learned about in school. He definitely pulls out all the stops when it comes to that kind of stuff. So Jason Russell, he's an American film and theater director, choreographer, activist, and he co-founded Invisible Children. So this is the group that was behind all of the Coney 2012 stuff. He is the director of Coney 2012, like I said, the short documentary film that went viral in the beginning of March 2012. In the first two weeks, Coney 2012 gained more than 83 million views on YouTube, and it became the subject of media scrutiny and criticism, which we'll get into as well. I feel like I can vividly remember sitting down and watching Coney 2012 for the first time and just being like, oh my god, like we absolutely have to do something, which um, we'll get to it a little bit later, but that was kind of the point. It was meant to be very palatable and digestible for children, uh, middle school to high school, so that they could feel like they were making a change. Um, I think it really drew in a lot of college students as well that like really felt like they were making a difference by joining the Coney 2012 movement. So Russell's parents are Cheryl and Paul Russell, and they are co-founders of the Christian Youth Theater, which Russell was a part of as a child. So again, this aligns for me with the Libra stuff. 
Russell discussed acting in an interview when he was 13 years old. This is a quote from Wikipedia. And he said, that was my life. It was what everybody around me did. I didn't even think about it. I did my first show at eight and I have done over 20 plays since. You can't do this if you don't like it. You have to commit yourself to it. And I relate to this because I started doing competitive dance at three years old, which this is very topical today because my old dance teacher actually just passed away. So rest in peace, David Mann. It was either today or yesterday. Um, I'm still a little bit in shock. Haven't processed that yet, but I've been thinking a lot about dance kind of goes hand in hand with theater. Um, yeah, I started competitive. Well, I started dancing at three and started competitive dancing at five and did that until I was 15. And it was just normal to me. Like I was always busy. I danced five days a week at the least. And it just made sense. But I wasn't committed to it. Like by eight years old, I was like already telling my dad, I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. And I didn't end up quitting until 15. But yeah, that any I feel like any sort of arts in that capacity is um, he's right about that. You do have to kind of commit to it. But when you're raised in it, it's it's like your whole world, like all of my friends and family like were involved in it. I would go to competitions like travel for this. It was very intense. All right. So that's a little bit about Jason. Let's go right back into that emotional appeal. So if you're familiar with Coney 2012, you have um, some background of what it's about. Basically, there is a lot of maltreatment, mistreatment of children. And that's just me putting it lightly, but I just don't want to get too much into that right away. But anyways, Jason uses his, I think he's like five, his five-year-old son in the documentary as like a visual, I think for emotional appeal, he like shows his son and then he says this quote, which I liked. He didn't choose where or when he was born, but because he is here, he matters. And I think that's important. And I think that that's, I love that sentence. Like that's a great message to share with the world. But yeah, he uses his son in the documentary. He shows him photos of Coney and like Jacob, who we're about to introduce here in a moment. And he, his son knows that his dad is like a filmmaker and so all of this stuff, and I think it's really just so that like us over here in America can see, oh my God, that's a cute five-year-old boy. What if what happens to these children that are being affected by Coney happens to that boy? Like we would be like raising hell over it, but nothing's happening over in Africa, yada, yada, yada. So that was kind of the point. All right, let's talk about Jacob. So Jason and Jacob met in Uganda, and at the time that this movie came out, or the documentary, Jacob and Jason had been friends for almost 10 years, and I think Jason was in Uganda just doing some sort of volunteer work. I might have missed that part, like why he was there, but he's an activist. He does a bunch of volunteer work, so I think that's why he was there, but basically Jacob was running for his life, supposedly, when they had met. He was worried about rebel arrests and murder, child abduction. And he was, he was a kid at the time that they met. So Jason was a full-blown adult over there doing volunteer work. Jacob was like, I'm not exactly sure how old he was. But in if I had to guess, like in the documentary, the footage they have when they first met, he was around maybe like anywhere from 11 to 13 on my my estimates. But I don't know if you should trust my estimates because I'm kind of, I'm not around kids a lot. So I'm kind of like, I don't know if that child is 15 or five, to be honest with you. So apparently they spent a couple weeks together and Jacob told him his story. Like he had been separated from his family. His brother had been murdered. 
by Coney and Coney's army. And Jacob said that he would rather die than stay on Earth. There was no one there to take care of him. And it was really sad. It was like some footage of Jacob crying and you're like feeling very moved by it. And so Jason promises that they were going to stop Coney. And I'm going to introduce Coney and the army here in a second. But he's like, this can't go on. If this was happening in the, U- in the United States, it would have been taken care of by now. Everybody would be like, this is unacceptable. So Jason did supposedly over nine years of activism in Africa. Um, I think he specifically was in Uganda. And then they made Coney 2012, which there, I have feelings about Coney 2012, but nothing like super bad. Like I think at the end of the day, they were trying to do something good, but it's just super corny and like this weird call to action that um, it worked, you know, but it was just kind of odd. Like at in the documentary, they're like, this film expires on December 31st, 2012. So we have to take action now. And it's like, why? Like, I don't understand. I mean, I understand why we, why we need to take action, but it was just the the language is interesting. So I'm going to tell you all about Joseph Coney and his army, the LRA, or the Lord's Resistance Army. So Joseph Coney was supposedly born sometime in 1961. I don't think we know exactly when. And Coney is of the Acholi people, which reside in South Sudan and northern Uganda. So Coney was born into a middle-class family, and he was either the youngest or the second youngest of six children in the family. Um, this is from Wikipedia, this part. And Coney enjoyed supposedly a good relationship with his siblings, but he was quick to retaliate in a dispute with violence. So he had been known to be violent amongst his family as a child, And I feel like whenever we talk about people like this in these episodes, they typically have some sort of violence in their childhood, whether it's them committing the violence or someone committing the violence against them. So that seems to be a common theme. So Coney's parents were both farmers. His father was of the Catholic Church and his mother was Anglican. And Coney was an altar boy until 1976. He did drop out of school at a young age and he never finished elementary school. I'm going to jump ahead just a little bit in the timeline. As of 2006, Coney had 42 children and several wives. So I'm assuming he has way more today or like at this point. I don't know. Um, But yeah, I just thought that was crazy. So I want to explain to you where the LRA came from, because I think that is a, a big missing piece from the Coney 2012 documentary. It just came out and they were like, Children are being abducted. People are being murdered. We have to do something about this. And I don't think we always need an answer or like a a reasoning. Like if someone's being abducted and murdered, do I really need to know why to help? You know what I mean? Like, okay, maybe in the situation of like, I don't know, like a victim attacking their murderer, like, okay, that's fine. Like, (laughs) whatever. I'm not condoning murder, but I can understand why that would happen. But like in this situation, they're like, oh, there's like a bunch of people and they're killing children and parents and abducting children and blah, blah, blah. So like, I don't know if it's necessary to know exactly like where the LRA came from in order for people to feel moved to take action against these people that are committing these atrocities. But There was a lot of criticism about the documentary. There was a lot of misinformation. And also a lot of people did criticize that there wasn't enough information. And I think that they feel like I do right now where I was like, maybe I should find out where the LRA came from. 
So let's talk about that. So according to Wikipedia, the overthrow of Acholi President Tito Okello by Yoweri Museveni and his National Resistance Army, the NRA, during the Ugandan Bush War, which was 1981 to 1986, had culminated in mass looting of livestock, rape, burning of homes, genocide, and the murder, (laughs) and the murder, and murder by Museveni's army. And the atrocities committed by Museveni's NRA, which is now known as the Uganda People's Defense Force, led to the rise of concentration camps in northern Uganda where over 2 million people were confined. So according to the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, alienated Acholi troops subsequently formed less extreme Holy Spirit movements to counter the Ugandan government. So people in the Acholi communities were like, this is not good, we need to stand up for ourselves and do something about it. Most of them were... um, I guess, more palatable or like they weren't doing what the LRA was doing. So what I'm getting at is like these little groups started to pop up and then Coney was like, oh, cool, same. I'm going to start an army. And so in 1988, Coney, with his violent tendencies, created the LRA. And this was after these like smaller, um, less extreme Acholi groups had been defeated. And so... I think that sometimes when we talk about rebellion and, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know. I guess rebellion works. So, like, I think sometimes violence, it's not the answer, but it makes a statement that maybe being peaceful doesn't always do. And so I don't think... I think violence should be like a last resort situation. And I think that's how this may have started. And then it turned into something totally different from its original intention. I'm not trying to say that I think that that's exactly what happened here. But anyways, (laughs) let's keep going. The Lord's Resistance Army is a rebel group and heterodox Christian group which operates or has operated in northern Uganda, South Sudan, the Central African Republic, CAR, and the Democratic Republic of the Congo. So this is a quote from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Joseph Kony established the LRA in 1988 with the claim of restoring the honor of his ethnic Acholi people and to install a government based on his personal version of the Ten Commandments. Kony claims to channel various spirits who direct him to oust Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni. However, under Kony's leadership, LRA soldiers conduct violence for the sake of violence, primarily against civilians, rather than fighting to advance a political agenda. So that basically explains what I just said. Like he's, I think he used the opportunity to start this, like the the political environment to start this group and then let it become kind of what he wanted it to be like he just had a power trip i think i read somewhere that they said it was mainly like one of the lra army soldiers was like this is about money and politics but it just really was about violence at the end of the day so a little bit more background on the lra so they had their roots in the conflict between the acholi tribe of northern uganda and other tribes in southern uganda that began 
during Idi Amin Dada's regime, which was 1971 to 1979. And after Idi Amin was overthrown, power changed back and forth between two equally ruthless Acholi leaders, but the Acholi were forced to flee back to the north when Museveni seized power in 86. I have like a little hair under my nose or something that keeps tickling me. So if you're watching this, I'm so sorry. I keep like scratching my little mustache. All right. LRA soldiers quickly gained a reputation for murder, torture, rape, and mutilations aimed primarily at Acholi communities, as well as abducting tens of thousands of children over the years to use as sex slaves and child soldiers. And that was also from uh, the director of, what's it called? National Intelligence. <laughs> um, yeah, which is just so confusing because it was like supposed to be originally in defense of the Acholi people, and now they're taking advantage of the Acholi people. It's like they're attacking themselves. So it's very uh, warped. This was a quote from Wikipedia. It appears to largely function as a personality cult of Kony, a self-declared prophet. People have compared him to the cult leader of the Waco siege, which we are going to do an episode on. So just hold on to that thought. According to the United Nations, LRA raids villages to pillage food and supplies. The fighters set ambushes to attack security forces and steal their equipment when they would respond to LRA attacks. And LRA fighters also target and loot villages that do not have a military presence. The LRA has also intensified attacks on diamond and gold mining sites. So the gist of what they talk about in Kony 2012 is that Kony takes children from their families. He kills their parents, mutilates their bodies, gives them guns, and makes them kill other people. And that was kind of what everybody took from this. And that, I mean, that is, like, kind of the main point of it all. Like, obviously, the details are important, and we need to talk about them and, like, be familiarized with them. But that was the gist of what we learned from Kony 2012. So this is also from... The, na the office of the director of the National Intelligence. In 2008, following Kony's refusal to sign a negotiated peace agreement, Ugandan DRC and Southern Sudanese armies launched a joint military offensive, Operation Lightning Thunder, which is a cool, badass name, against the LRA in northeastern Congo. So the LRA broke up into smaller, more mobile groups and spread out in the border region, making them even more difficult to locate. And continuing this, quote, in May of 2010, the U.S. Congress passed the Lord's Resistance Army Disarmament and Northern Uganda Recovery Act. Oops, I think I stumbled over my words there, which follows the U.S. State Department inclusion of the LRA on the terrorist exclusion list in 2001 and designation of Joseph Kony as a specially designated global terrorist under Executive Order 13324 in 2008. Uh, gotta itch my nose or scratch my nose oh my god people are gonna come for me because I said I have to itch my nose I'm sorry I have to scratch my itch okay so I think the LRA has actually been removed um from this terrorist list or like it hasn't been replaced onto a, the newer versions of this um I think that was what they said in one of the Coney videos all right so back to like the Kony video, like, this is what this information is from. So as of 2012, Kony had been abducting children into his rebel group for 26 years. 
And he would turn girls into sex slaves, boys into child soldiers. He would make them mutilate people's faces. They, like, show clips of, like, children that don't have noses. They just have, like, the nose is gone. And they have, like, the two, like, circles where, like, their nose would be. And he would force them to kill their own parents. And this is true. Like, this was actually happening. I'm not trying to be like, uh, he would show this stuff. Like, no, this actually was happening. Um, So that was, I mean, at the end of the day, like I said, like, they were trying to do a good thing, get the message out. And I don't think that they necessarily did, like, a super bad thing. It was just a bunch of white people that did kind of, like, a shitty job at white saviorism, I guess. Is that a word? Saviorism? (laughs) White savior vibes. So they claim that over 30,000 children were, like, in the army or something. Or maybe they weren't clear about it. This will come back in some of the criticism. So over 30,000 children had been abducted, but I think a lot of people thought that they were saying that there were 30,000 children that were in the actual army. Um, So not every child that they would abduct was made a child soldier. So I don't know exactly, like, there's no, like, real explanation as to what was done with all of these children. Um, But anyways, Jacob was one of them, and I guess he got... He escaped. Coney was not fighting for, like, any particular reason anymore as it, like, had started out with, you know, whatever. It's a political thing. Suddenly it just became, like, he wanted to just remain in power. He liked that he had his own army. He liked that he instilled fear into people. So that was why he just continued doing what he was doing. He was supported by nobody, and he had repeatedly used peace talks, like we talked about a little bit ago, to rearm and then murder again. So I'm going to introduce you all to the International Criminal Court, which is in the Netherlands, and the court's job is to find and arrest the worst criminals in the world. At the time that Coney 2012 came out, Coney was number one on the list. He was the first person indicted by the ICC, the International Criminal Court, for war crimes and crimes against humanity. Ugandan politicians were willing to cooperate with anyone, any friends of Uganda, to stop the actions committed by Coney. And now I'm going to introduce you guys to the Invisible Children Organization and their fundraising platform, TRI, T-R-I, so like three. There's a quote from Jason in the documentary. He says, a bunch of little monthly donations can make a big impact. Um, And he also said, which I liked this part, where you live shouldn't determine whether you live. So he's really good at choosing the right words to evoke emotion. Like, I'm definitely a words of affirmation type of person. I love to write poetry, read poetry. I love song lyrics, which is so frustrating because, like, words don't mean shit. And, like, the best feelings in this world, you can't use words to describe. But I still love words, and I love communication and language, and I think that's why I'm sitting here talking to a camera with a big light in my face. Okay. So Jason and his friends thought, if everyone knew about Coney, we could stop this. Like, it's not a super huge army. Like, let's make an impact. He made a promise to Jacob when he was a kid. He was like, we're going to get Coney for getting your brother. And that's very noble, noble, um, very white savior. But anyways, so the Invisible Children went to government officials, but they all said there was no way that they would get involved with a conflict where, quote, our national security or financial interests aren't at stake, which I'm like, that is the most bullshit fucking answer I have ever heard because 
we do that all the time or we'll like come up with some reason out of our ass to be like this is why we should go over there and involve ourselves and like yeah so that was what they said in the documentary so the invisible children were like all right we got to do a ton of activist work we got to you know grassroots this thing um they talk about jacob they talk about the actual children over in africa and jacob and other ugandans came to the u.s to discuss coney Uganda at the time was relatively safe. So that was like, I think all they like said in the documentary was like Uganda was safe at the time, but Kony was still out there, which we'll come back to in the criticisms. A lot of people were upset with like the focus on Uganda and I'll explain to you guys why. So Try, like I mentioned, was the platform where they were going to be receiving the monthly donations that people could submit. And they planned to use donation money for rebuilding the communities that had been pillaged and attacked they wanted to rebuild schools, create jobs, and build an early warning radio network on the front line of the war to protect villages from attacks. And that's another thing, the war. I'm putting air quotes if you're not watching this. People were not happy with like the way that they used the war the word war so lightly. So that's just something to note. So after they've been doing all of this, they're doing activist work, they're like telling people about Coney. This is before the documentary came out because they're talking about this in the documentary, but they're just doing a ton of activism, having protests, whatever. The Invisible Children went back to D.C. and spoke to officials, and they supposedly finally agreed that Coney needed to be stopped after seeing all the impact that the Invisible Children had made. And in a letter to the Invisible Children from Barack Obama, who was the president at the time, he said, I have authorized, this is a quote, I have authorized a small number of U.S. forces to deploy to Central Africa to provide assistance to regional forces that are working toward the removal of Joseph Kony from the battlefield. So this was like a big hoorah moment in the documentary. They're all like, yay, yay, yay. And this is like good, like cool. I think how I mentioned a second ago, like the U.S. likes to kind of butt their heads into things. I think that's definitely a privilege that we have to be able to just do that. Um, and I think that was... I know I've mentioned like the white savior concept twice now, I think. And I think there's like a fine line between using white privilege and then like the white savior kind of mentality. And their whole thing that they were talking about in the documentary was like, every human has rights that should be protected. Like just based on the fact that you were born, you have rights that deserve to be protected. And that's a human race situation. That's not like a country or like ethnicity situation like we are all humans who all have the same rights that need to be defended and so the whole point was like yeah maybe this isn't directly impacting us over here in the united states but how can we know about something like this and not do something about it when we literally have the resources that could potentially stop something like this especially since this army was so small um and so i th i think that's what they were getting at and I think that's a beautiful message, but I think that's why a lot of people were just kind of like, what the fuck? But this was a big deal. They made an impact. They made the government realize that people cared. And I think that also plays into a lot of the rhetoric in the documentary is like, who are you to stop a war? But who aren't you to stop a war? Like, I think Jason said that at the beginning. It's a really good message. Like, he's really trying to show people that you can make a difference in this world. And I think that's important. And I think that you can make a difference for sure. So I don't want to like shit on that entirely because I do think that it was like 
maybe a little misguided. Maybe there's some misinformation or not enough information in the documentary. But the concept of getting out there and doing the work and then proving to the government like, oh, there are a ton of people out here who really care about this and then getting them to take action. That's a big deal because as we know over here in the United States and other countries around the world, it can be really hard to get your government to do what you want them to do, what's for the best interest of the people or what the people really care about. So I will give them kudos for that. So on December 2nd, 2011, there was a high-frequency radio report that came in from Central Africa, and it was saying something along the lines of a 14-year-old escapee claimed that Joseph Kony found out about the U.S. plan to stop the LRA, and he was changing his, his tactics to avoid capture. I don't have details on that. I don't know exactly, like, I don't know what his plan or method of attack was prior to this and what it was after this, but basically he just knew that the U.S. was, like, instigating According to Jason, this is a quote, in order for Coney, and I think I actually just paraphrased this because it was in the documentary, in order for Coney to be stopped, he needed to be arrested in 2012, but they needed to track him and find him in the jungles, which is where the U.S. would come in to help. And if the government doesn't believe, the U.S. government, if they don't believe that people care about capturing Coney, then they'll cancel the mission because why would we do something to help other people? That was sarcasm. People need to know that, like, we're doing good things. You know what I mean? So something that they were doing to kind of take action was they had this plan of getting 20 culture makers and 20 policymakers to get on their side and want to stop Coney. Some of the cultural people that they included were Rihanna, Mark Zuckerberg, Tim Tebow, Oprah, George Clooney, Ellen Taylor Swift, just big popular people at the time to speak out on the Coney issue. There were also 20 policymakers that they didn't mention any of their names, um, which I was like, okay. They, they showed pictures of them, but they didn't say like any of their names, which it is on the website, I believe, if you wanted to take a look at it. So this was also an election year, right? Yeah. And so they like really honed in on the concept of like, regardless of political affiliation, Coney was an issue that needed to be addressed. And if you look at a lot of the, I guess, I don't want to say propaganda, the like posters and art and things that they had out there at the time, it looks like a presidential campaign, which I think kind of skews the message. Um, I understand why they were doing that, because they were like, this is a big election year and it's also a big issue that they wanted attention on so they were like trying to take advantage of the fact that there was elections happening so they were like let's latch on to that and then we'll like be associated and people will look at it whatever um but looking back on it I'm like it just looks like you're trying to like vote for Coney <laughs> to be president um but also like people don't want to see posters of like dead children and stuff around so it maybe was probably actually a smart idea um, and I mean, it worked. People were looking at it. So, so they had like merch or like, so they call it the action kit. So you would get two bracelets in this action kit. One was for you and one was to give away. And then there was like posters and some other stuff in there, but the bracelets each had an ID number and like you would go online, enter the ID number. And then they said, this is what they said in the documentary. I don't know what it means, but they said you enter the mission to make Coney famous by putting in your ID number. 
It's kind of weird. It literally was just a bracelet that said Coney and then like a bunch of numbers underneath. And I'm like, that feels like concentration campy. Like I don't, I don't understand what the point of the number situation was. I'm sure there was some reason behind it, but that's what they said in the documentary. And I was like, can we have a little bit more information? Um, you could geotag your posters. Like they wanted you to post on social media and tag them and all the good stuff. And they also had this event that they were planning on 420, April 20th, 2012, called Cover the Night. And the point of this was for everyone to like band the whole world in Coney regalia. Is that the right word? So they wanted everyone to meet at sundown, go out through the pitch black of the night, blanket the world in Coney signs, no matter where you were, even if you were alone, like in your city, it's a small town, go do it anyway. Or you could meet up with people in a big city and do it. So that was like their big thing. And then this was a like kind of a wrap up that they said in the documentary, but they were like, decisions for our culture and society are basically made by the few with money and power. They dictate the government, they dictate the media, they determine the lives and opportunities of their citizens. But people can mass together and change this. And I think that's dope. Like, yeah, I agree with that. Um, so there's no hate there. It's just like corny. But I'm corny. So their final action steps for the end of Coney 2012 was sign the pledge to show support, get the bracelet and the action kit, and sign up for Try to donate a few dollars a month to join their army for peace. So they're, again, using all these buzzwords. Whew, gosh, okay. Let's talk about the public reaction. So obviously... I was like, Dad, we got to buy an action kit. And he was like, I'm not buying that. And I didn't get one. But I remember vividly people at school having them. And I was talking to Mandy today and she was like saying that she's pretty sure her school did like a fundraiser. And now that I say that, I feel like mine did a fundraiser too. I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, so basically tons of rallies, tons of fundraising events, tons of volunteer work. There's a lot of footage of like young college students thinking they're like making a huge difference. College students are so funny. We're, we were so impressionable and like you just feel so in control of everything and like you can really make a difference and you can. So it's just like uh, all these college students got like wrapped up in this Coney stuff. So I'm going to talk about some of the negative reactions because for me, I, the reason I'm doing this topic was because I was literally like, whatever happened to that? Like, I remember there was just a huge fuss. Everyone was stressed. It was like this huge international emergency. And then I felt like I never had any closure on it. And then I remember seeing on social media, people being like, Coney is a hoax and like, blah, blah, blah. And I don't think it's a hoax because Coney is a real person and what he was doing are real atrocities and it's very much real. But I think that the invisible children, while doing a good thing and shedding light on it, also kind of like they oversimplified the situation and they made it trendy. And in the documentaries that I watched about it, it was like people at these rallies were giving speeches and it was mainly it was more about like building up the people's egos that they were doing something good. They would be like, you're making a difference. Like, we couldn't do this without you. It's all about you, 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 you. And I think it's good to give feedback to people. Like, yes, um, 
that makes people feel good. And if that's a way to make people get involved, then let's do it. But it was just tacky. It's tacky when there's a bunch of white people like trying to like feel good about themselves for like helping black people. I'm just going to say it. All right. The reactions. The LRA is not in Uganda. Oh, let me like tell you where I got this from before I just keep going. So the Guardian did a couple of articles about this, like right as it came out, they were doing like live updates of people's reactions to this. So pretty much this entire reaction section I got from the Guardian. Um, So let's dive into that. And this, so these are like quotes and stuff that I'm going to read to you. So the main like misconception or like the thing that people wanted to point out was that the LRA was not in Uganda at the time that Kony 2012 came out. It was operating in the DRC, South Sudan, and the Central African Republic. But yeah, I'm going to read it to you. So the Ugandan government put out this response via Fred Opelot, a government spokesman. Misinterpretations of media content may lead some people to believe that the LRA is currently active in Uganda. It must be clarified that at present the LRA is not active in any part of Uganda. Successfully expelled by the Ugandan People's Defense Defense Forces in mid 2006, the LRA has retreat. <laughs> okay, the LRA has retreated to dense terrain within bordering countries in the Central African area. They are diminished and weakened group with numbers not exceeding 300. The threat posed by the LRA in our neighboring countries is considerably reduced, and we are hopeful it will be altogether eliminated with the help of U.S. logistical support. The Ugandan government is encouraged by this outpouring of international support for its continuing campaign to eliminate the threat posed by the LRA. And they basically go on to say that they're hopeful that the other countries around them can experience the kind of peace and prosperity that they experienced after having the LRA expelled for six years. So I guess maybe at the time that Jason was in Uganda, it was a problem. And because I think he said he met Jacob and then they were friends for 10 years. He'd been doing activism for like nine years and then came out with Kony 2012. So maybe that was just a little bit of like misinformation there. I'm not trying to say that that's okay, but I'm like thinking like, okay, that probably makes sense. Um, So that was a big one wasn't in Uganda anymore. In October of 2011, Obama authorized the deployment of 100 U.S. Army advisors to help the Ugandan military track down Kony with no results disclosed as of the time this article was published in 2012. So that's another confusing part to me because I saw this um, in a couple other places too. I think in the national office of the direct... (laughs) Why can't I say that right? In the office of the director of the National Intelligence, whatever. I'm pretty sure they also said this about um, Obama sending help in 2011 and maybe the United Nations article I read. So it was like, I'm confused because you guys were saying like, well, I guess it makes sense maybe the timeline if it was 2011 when Obama finally sent them over. But it just seemed like in the documentary they were like really setting it up like, our government's not doing anything to help. And then they did. Um, So, but I don't want to give too much credit to our government. (laughs) Oh my goodness. This, This topic is getting me all hyped up. So another common criticism was that LRA was much smaller than it was previously thought to be. It does not have 30,000 child soldiers. So remember when I mentioned there was like 
mention of 30,000 children pertaining to Coney somehow. I think people heard that number and thought that that meant there was 30,000 child soldiers, which would any child soldier just is crazy. Like the fact that that's a thing, but 30,000 is like a terrifying image in the mind. Um, the figure of 30,000 refers to the total number of children abducted by the LRA over that like almost 30 year time span. Like that's a rough number. Okay. It is also worth noting that there was currently no threat to remove the U.S. advisors who are working with the Ugandan government. So the Invisible Children's main purpose was just making sure the government kept them there. This is a quote from Peter Bradshaw, who at the time was a film critic for The Guardian. And this is his thoughts, um, like just a couple of his thoughts, not all of it, on Coney 2012. It does not stick to the conventions of impartial journalism in the BBC style. It is partisan, tactless, and very bold, but it could be seen as insufferably condescending, a way of making U.S. college kids feel good about themselves. And is Jason Russell scared to come out and admit that effective action entails an old-fashioned, boots-on-soil invasion of a landlocked African country with all the collateral damage that this implies? So that's heavy. And then Arthur Larrick? or Larock, Action AIDS director in Uganda. He was also previously the director of programs at the Uganda National NGO Forum for nine years. This is what he says about Kony 2012. Six or ten years ago, this would have been a really effective campaign strategy to get international campaigning. But today, years after Kony has moved away from Uganda, I think campaigning that appeals to these emotions, I'm not sure that's effective for now. The circumstances in the North have changed. Invisible children are not a member of our forum. Many international organizations prefer to work and have direct contact with their quarters. They don't work so much within the structures we have in the country. There's nothing dramatic about them. They're like any other organization trying to make a difference. At the moment, I think the work of invisible children is about appealing to people's emotions. I think that time has passed. Their reputation in the country is something that can be debatable. There's a strong argument generally about NGOs and their work in the North. It doesn't sound like a fair representation of Uganda. We have challenges within the country, but certainly the perception of a country at war is not accurate at all. There are political, economic, and social challenges, but they are complex. Being dramatic about a country at war is not accurate. So I think that is where a lot of people were upset that they were just throwing around the word war and then like incorrectly talking about Uganda. And I think that that's important that we get the facts straight when we talk about serious matters like this, but also... I like that they did point out, like, there is still an issue with Coney. It's just not necessarily here. Okay, so John Vidal, he was the former environment editor at The Garden. He did a little digging into the Invisible Children, and so I'm going to read you what he said about them. So far, the organization has released 11 films and run film tours across the U.S. and other countries to raise awareness. In Uganda, it has given scholarships to 750 children and helped to rebuild schools there and in Central Africa. The organization's accounts show it's a cash-rich operation with more than tripled its income in 2011, with more than two-thirds of its money coming from general donations. And that's there's air quotes around general donations. The accounts suggest nearly 25% of its $8.8 million income last year was spent on travel and filmmaking, with only around 30% going toward programs on the ground. The great majority of the money raised has been spent in the U.S., 
$1.7 million went on U.S. employee salaries, $357,000 in film costs, and $850,000 in film production costs, $244,000 in, quote, professional services, thought to be Washington lobbyists, and $1.07 million in travel expenses. Nearly $400,000 was spent on an office rent in San Diego. Which, like, you got to do some of that. Like, I get that. You have to have infrastructure. You have to pay people. I don't. I guess you don't have to pay people if it was all volunteer work. But for people to be able to, like, really give their all, it makes sense to, like, pay them so they can work and not have to worry about volunteering and working at the same time. But it's just crazy that only 30% of the money that was going in was going to the actual rehabilitation and support of people in Africa versus, like, traveling and making these dramatic videos. Charity Navigator, and this is continuing on in his research in The Invisible Children. Charity Navigator, a U.S. charity evaluator, gives Invisible Children three out of four stars overall, four stars financially, but only two stars for accountability and transparency. This would seem to be a vote of no confidence, but it is explained by Noelle Juglet, communication director of Invisible Children, like this. Our score is currently at two stars due to the fact that Invisible Children currently does not have five independent voting members on our board of directors. We are currently in the process of interviewing potential board members, and our goal is to add an additional independent member this year in order to regain our four-star rating by 2013. We're aware and trying to fix it. The website suggests a staff of around 100 people with the founders and senior staff mostly drawn from filmmaking and media industries. Jason Russell, the CEO and co-founder, is described as Jason Radical Russell, our grand storyteller and dreamer, air quotes again. He is said to be, quote, redefining the concept of humanitarian work and to believe, quote, wholeheartedly in magic and the impossible, end quote. Laren Poole, another co-founder, is another filmmaker, and the Ben Kesey, the chief financial officer, has been with Deloitte & Touche LLP, J.P. Morgan & Associates, and Brentwood Associates Private Equity. He is described as, quote, embracing the impossible and plots the course of our daring future. Which is interesting to me because I'm like, he's an accountant, which I think I'll talk about him more in a second, but he's an accountant. And I'm like, hmm, are you like a sneaky accountant? Like, why are you bracing for the future? Like, if you're you're literally just, I don't know, I feel like companies blow up their like CFO's egos so much. Like, it's just money. It doesn't need to be all fancy and crazy. But that also is kind of why I went into accounting anyways, because I was like, I like that you can manipulate money to an extent under the law and maximize your money. So maybe that's what they mean, but I don't know. I think when you're spending that much money on what they were spending it on at that point, it doesn't really matter what your CFO is doing. Okay, and this is kind of what I talked about a little bit earlier on, like how I was so like caught up in Coney 2012 as a kid. Invisible Children's Director of Communications, Jedediah Jenkins, said many critics were missing the point. Quote, our films are made for high school children, he said. Our films weren't made to be scrutinized by The Guardian. They were made to get young people involved in some of the world's... Oh, I guess I missed... Oopsie. I accidentally cut off my quote. But you can probably get where that was going. Sassy. All right, this is from Wikipedia. On March 15th, 2012, so... Coney 2012 came out early March, so this is, like, really close after. 
At the height of the Coney 2012 video's viral popularity, San Diego police detained Jason Russell for psychiatric evaluation. He was naked, and he had allegedly allegedly been vandalizing cars and making sexual gestures after removing his underwear in public during a public breakdown that was filmed and released online. I didn't even try to look this up. I don't know what's wrong with me. I should have. Um, I don't know if it's still out there. I didn't know about this at the time. So also I was a kid, though. I shouldn't have. Russell was hospitalized for several weeks, and a statement by his family said the diagnosis was a, quote, brief reactive psychosis, an acute state brought on by extreme exhaustion, stress, and dehydration as a result of the popularity of the campaign. In October of 2012, Russell appeared on Oprah's Next Chapter to discuss the incident, and he described it as a, quote, out-of-body experience and stated, quote, that wasn't me, that's not who I am. Now, I don't think that this necessarily, um, I put this in the reactions category because this is obviously his reaction to what's been going on. And I don't think that this is something that we need to like, well, I mean, he was vandalizing cars and naked and that's a problem. But I think the psychosis, it makes sense. He got so many views on his video, like immediately. It went viral. This is like when we're like learning what viral means and stuff. and. I went viral on the internet and that shit made me not okay. Like I was not okay. People were like, a lot of people were being nice, but a lot of people were not being nice. And like, I feel like if this man really did spend nine, 10 years, whatever, like doing activism, volunteer work, and then he put together this video, it's obviously he cares about this. Like, I'm just going to say that at the very least he cares. So like, To get that much response, I can imagine, is, like, overwhelming. And then you've been working so hard. And, like, you know, whatever. People have psychosis experiences. So I just thought that that was interesting because I'm human and we think those kinds of things are interesting. But I wanted to kind of put that in there to humanize him a little bit um, because I feel like we all know someone who's been there. I was going to tell my opinion here, but I feel like I've definitely been sprinkling my opinion in as we've been going. So I'm just going to keep going. There was a part two video that came out, and I don't think I watched it when I was a kid because at that point, I don't think people... It has a lot of views, but I don't think... that. I feel like that's a common theme whenever there's like something that goes viral and it could be like a joke or misinformation that was like not meant to go viral. It like it goes viral and then there'll be like a follow-up video of somebody being like that was not what I meant or like explaining it or talking about it those never get as much attention as the first and so we kind of lock in on the the first concepts that were released in that first video versus like watching the second one and getting new or more information and I think humans learn grow and change and like we say things and then we learn that something isn't necessarily accurate and then we change our minds and correct ourselves and I think we all should have that um opportunity or priv- maybe not privilege but um everyone deserves to be able to like change their mind and learn new information about things and update the way they think about things I think that's just a part of human nature but we live in a society where there's like lots of cancel culture and um a not super forgiving society. It's like if you do something wrong, it's like into the world type vibes. And 
we don't really allow people the space to grow safely or learn that maybe something isn't politically correct or things like that. Um, so anyways, Coney 2012 Part 2, Beyond Famous. So Ben Kesey, he was CFO, the accountant I was just talking about. He became the CEO of Invisible Children. He says that his story was like in 2004, he just graduated from school. He started working in the corporate accounting field. Wow, I'm having deja vu. And then he saw Invisible Children's first film and he wanted to get involved. So at the beginning of this part two, there's a quote. There's a lot of quotes of like different newscasters or like people on YouTube saying their opinion about how um, basically the Coney 2012 video oversimplified a very complicated situation. And so I took this quote. It says, white Westerners on a bandwagon without a clue what they're talking about. So that was kind of the way that a lot of people felt about this video. And obviously a lot of people felt differently about it because they wanted to take action. But there were a lot of people that were like, this is just, there are so many things happening in the world. Like if you're going to make a big fuss about it, like get the information right, you know. So the president of Uganda, like I read his reaction a little bit ago, he basically like wanted to clear up the situation that it wasn't in Uganda, that they're safe. But he he did express or the government, at least, did express um, gratitude that there was light being shown on. I really need to figure out if it's shined or shown, um, because I keep saying that. But he basically, the president of Uganda, discussed that awareness is what's important. Like, And I think that's what I'm coming, my conclusion so far is like, there were some errors made, but awareness of these matters is important. And I think that goes back to like what I was talking about today, where there's so much stuff going on in the world. I don't think we're supposed to know all of this stuff. I don't. I think the internet makes it so that we do know all of this stuff. But, you know, maybe spreading the message gets it to the right person that has the resources and the time to make a huge difference. And, you know, maybe it stresses 50 people out because they saw it and can't do anything. But maybe there's that one person that can really make a difference. So. I think the intentions were good. All right. So Coney 2012 made a huge impact. And this this second part is basically them just updating the world, being like, hey, like, you guys made a difference. So they were saying that they would get like 200 calls every two minutes at the headquarters. Um, two weeks after Coney 2012 launched, there were two bipartisan resolutions that were introduced to the Senate supporting the f- effort to disarm the LRA. And unfortunately, in the time frame from when Coney 2012 came out and Coney 2012 Part 2 came out, 57 more people were abducted. These are just reports. um, Could be more or less. So at this time, there was only about 250 actual child soldiers. So remember how I said that there was like 30,000 abducted and then like we have these stats of only like 250 child soldiers. It's like that's really not that many. And they're just on this like reign of terror situation and they really made a huge impact their destruction was disproportionately large they displaced like over 440,000 people from their home they were holding women and children captive forcing people to leave their villages after attacks like they really didn't make a big difference but it's so crazy to me it's only 250 people and it makes me think of like all the other situations in the world um that are similar like you don't really need a huge group to make a difference. 
All right. What else? What else? So they made flyers um, and they put them in the jungle. They like release them from a plane and like let them fall. And the hopes was to send messages to Coney's captives and his supporters that were like, you know, they're literally children that have been abducted and like forced into whatever they're being forced into. I guess I'm just confused where like the other 30,000 people are. Like if they're not all soldiers, I know some of them were like sex slaves. Um, So I guess we can... I did not see the words human trafficking anywhere in any of my research, but I just feel like when I hear the word sex slaves, my brain associates that with human trafficking. So maybe um, they were forcing people to like loot and like steal stuff, whatever. Um, But the idea of these flyers was like maybe um, the children would see them, the captives, the people that were convinced by Coney that they were doing the right thing would see it and be like, oh, the outside world is saying like, this isn't what I'm supposed to be doing. And basically they, the flyers were just like, hey, like if you need help to get away from Coney, people are out here trying to help you. So like try to escape if you can, like if it's safe. And people did. Like some of these kids actually did escape Coney and some of them were because they saw these flyers. Um, a lot of them needed a lot of rehab. It's really sad actually. Like they did show some of the children and stuff. They had been like abducted, watched their parents get murdered and like their siblings and they somehow made it out okay, but, like, obviously needed tons of, like, therapy for the trauma they experienced. Um, I don't think I mentioned it earlier, but Jacob, like, really wanted to go to school. So that was one of the big things, like, early on in Coney 2012, when they were showing footage of him as, like, a child, he was like, I really, like, wish I could, you know, be in school, whatever. He grows up and joins a law firm. Like, he goes to law school and joins a law firm. So I thought that was really cool. He wanted to help the people in Africa, and he wanted to help people internationally. He seems very wholesome. And then in this video, their comprehensive approach to stopping the LRA was outlined as follows. So the first thing that they wanted was civilian protection. So that radio system that I told you guys about, they wanted to finish like building that out and expand it. And then the second thing, and they did do that, I'm pretty sure. And then peaceful surrender. So that was them sending out the flyers. Um, They were hoping that people that were actually in the soldier group, the army, (laughs) the soldier group, um, would see it and, like, surrender themselves. Rehab and reconstruction was the third thing, and that was for the escapees and the villages that experienced attacks. And then the fourth thing was arrest of top LRA leadership. So that was that video. And then I watched another video that was called What Happened to Coney 2012? And all three of these videos were produced by the Invisible Children. So the first one was like 30 minutes. The second one, I think, was like 20. And this last one, What Happened to Coney 2012, was like seven or eight minutes. And it's so... I don't know. There's something... (laughs) I don't know why I'm, like, resistant to it and, like, why I'm being judgmental about it. But, like, there... And in this video, they're, like, showing what to me looks like a rave. It's, like, a rave of all these people wearing, like, Coney 2012 shirts and, like, with glow sticks. And there's, like, a stage with people dancing and talking. And, like, it's, like, a dance party. And I get that it's probably, like, some sort of fundraising or, like, volunteer event. But for some reason, it, like, rubbed me the wrong way that they were just showing that in this video. Like, look how cool you can be if you help support Coney or uh, the Coney 2012 movement and stop Coney. It was just really weird. I don't know why it's, like, bothering me that people can, like, have fun after, like, volunteering and doing work for such a serious topic. But I think it just kind of downplays the seriousness of what 
their movement supposedly is and goes back to that idea of like we're celebrating you for doing something good in another country um i don't know go watch it i'll link it in the show notes like i always do but it's just just a bunch of like college kids jumping up and down at like a coney rave so in this video they talk about on november 17th 2012 there was a petition to 12 world leaders to end the violence in uganda Again, the violence in Uganda that's like, and I'm, that's from the video, it's not in Uganda at this point. It's just like, what the fuck? On January 15th, 2013, a bill was passed to bring Coney to justice, and it was the Rewards for Justice bipartisan bill. So they're just getting a bunch of bills passed, you know. And then this was the real kicker for me. They have a new monthly donation platform called Fourth Estate for more life-changing work. You can donate monthly and contribute to this life-changing work. And I, this, again, was another thing that rubbed me the wrong way. I tried to look into, like, my first thought when I saw that, I was like, what? Like, didn't you just have Try? So I don't know if, like, Try and Fourth Estate are their own standalone kind of pre-made fundraising situations. Like, I think of, like, GoFundMe. Like, anyone can go on GoFundMe, and, like, that's already, like, it's, like, a platform that's built out for you to fundraise. So I'm like, is Try and Fourth Estate that? But I was trying to like look at it and I was like, why did they switch from try to fourth estate? If you go on their website, they have some information about like the meaning behind try and the meaning behind the fourth estate and how it's modeled after the French Revolution and how they flipped like the, you know, the one percenters on their head and all the like people underneath were making change, which is like a beautiful concept. But I just... I don't understand why, like, and this this video only came out, like, a year later. This was, like, 2013. And so I don't understand why they're switching platforms. And then I'm confused because you can, I'm pretty sure you can donate to the Invisible Children, too. So you're donating to the Invisible Children, Try, and Fourth Estate, which, like, I'm pretty sure are all supposed to be the same, like, mission. And it just was unclear to me. There was no explanation why. And there was no real, um description as to like what you were contributing to when you would donate to fourth estate so that just like annoyed me I was like can you just be consistent I don't know (laughs) again I'm getting really heated about this topic but like okay so they released 700,000 of those rescue flyers I talked about they installed three new fm radio stations and expanded the radio to dozens of villages There were more than 30 long-term LRA members that surrendered themselves. One of them um, particularly was one of his child wives. And she was like, oh, this isn't normal. And then supposedly LRA killings decreased 67% in 2013. Two of the top five LRA members were off the battlefield. They had rehab centers at full capacity. And there were only 200-ish LRA fighters left. All right. Let's talk about kind of like 2012 to now. So since at least, oh, this is from the UN? Yeah, the United Nations. Since at least 2014, the LRA has been involved in elephant poaching and elephant trafficking for revenue generation. So again, just all about money and violence at this point. No political help or anything. The LRA reportedly traffics ivory from Garamba National Park in northern DRC to Darfur to trade for weapons and supplies. The LRA reportedly transports poached elephant tusks through car into Darfur, Sudan to sell. Additionally, as of early 2014, 
Coney had reportedly ordered LRA fighters to loot diamonds and gold from miners in Eastern Car for transport to Sudan. And as of January 2015, 500 LRA elements were reportedly expelled from the Sudan. So I don't know, like, where we're getting these numbers. I don't know, because, like, the last video, they were like, there's only 200 LRA people, and now they're saying there's, like, 500. But I'm not entirely sure of what the definition of elements is in this scenario. So I don't know if that means, like, you know, there's soldiers, and then there's, like, the abducted people, um, the sex slaves. I'm not really sure. In 2015 and 2016, the LRA, while heavily armed, attacked several villages. Um, This involved looting, violence against civilians, burning down homes, destruction of property, and the abduction of children. By April of 2017, this is from Wikipedia, Kony was still at large, but his force was reported to have shrunk to approximately 100 soldiers down from an estimated high of 3,000. I'm not sure exactly when that high was, but again, they've been operating for like 30-something years. And then this was from the New York Times, and they report um, that Samuel Enosa Penny, the the Archbishop of the Western Equatoria State, wrote in an email, quote, atrocities committed by the LRA have been reduced by 80%. All right. This is from the, the thing I can't say. The Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Kony's whereabouts are unknown, although he is believed to be hiding in Kafia Kingi, a Sudanese-controlled enclave on the border of the Kar in South Sudan. Kony is also believed to be in poor health. Defectors from the LRA have reported that Kony has diabetes, while it has also been alleged that he has AIDS. So, karma? According to the Irish Mirror, in December of 2021, The U.S., through its embassy in the Central African Republic, published a warrant of $5 million for any information leading to the capture of Kony. And finally, a 2022 Douchewell article article states that former Kony child abductees claim he is alive and hiding out in Sudan still, sending orders to his army. So I saw like two or three articles as of like the beginning of 2022 where people were thinking like I and and (laughs) thinking like I... And they were like, what's Coney up to? Like, what's going on? And apparently some of the escapees were like, he's still very much out there. I guess he's sick and old now. Um, which, like, yeah, he's been living in the jungle, on like, fleeing for years. Like, I can't imagine what that does to you, like, spiritually, mentally, physically, emotionally. Like, that's a lot. Um, so, yeah, that's all I have on, like, the notes front. So... I mean, this one is, like, a lot. I think it's crazy that he's still out there. I'm like, how have we not... How has he just evaded all attempts to find him? Like I kind of touched on, like, I feel like at the end of the day, Jason Russell and the Invisible Children were really trying to... They really thought they ate. They really were trying to do something. And they did. They did something. They made a huge impact. And it looks like they did use some of the money to help people. And I think that's, at the end of the day, all you can really ask for is that people are being helped. It's unfortunate there was a lot of misinformation. I'm glad that people came out and corrected it. Um, I think this just shows how much fucked up shit is happening in the world that we might not all know about. But I think I did a good job of kind of interjecting my feelings and emotions throughout this. I usually try, 
I don't know. I try to be bi- or not biased. I try to be unbiased, Freudian slip, and just lay the facts out, which I think I did a good job of just laying out the facts. But this one just gets me hyped up. But I'm so like wishy-washy about it. I'm not sure how I feel. It just I think Jason Russell just has one of those like quirky personalities that you're like, this guy, you know what I mean? Um, but at the end of the day, he he left his mark on this world. So that's all we can ask for. I mean, I'd like to go viral too. So, <laughs> but for the podcast, not for like the thing I went viral for that was lame. Yeah, I think that's it. <sighs> I was talking really fast that whole time. All right, skeptics, you guys know what to do. Follow me at Profskep Podcast. That's at P-R-O-F-S-K-E-P Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. You can check out our website at profskeppodcast.com. You can become a Patreon subscriber at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Profskep Podcast. There's four tiers. There's a $3 tier, $5 tier, $10 tier, and $15 tier. If you sign up to be a sexy skeptic at $15, you get one of these lovely mugs. Is it going to focus? There we go. Look at that. Quality content or quality merch. And then I also have a big cartel where you can buy stickers. So Profskep, or yeah, profskeppodcast.bigcartel.com. And I think that's everything. It's all in the bio link tree forward slash Profskep podcast, everything you would need. Subscribe, subscribe to YouTube where you're watching this right now. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, share this with your friends. But literally everything that I just said is all on that link tree. Everything kind of circles back to each other. So if you're on one thing, you can typically find everything else. Um, What else? What else? What else? I love you guys so much. Stay sus skeptics. I'll see you next week. Mwah.